university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers Podcast. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and we are going to be jumping back in today with part two of our two-part roundtable episode on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I will be joined today by Dr. Lauren Camachi, our independent scholar from Cleveland, Ohio, and Dr. Dustin... Uh, oh, I was going to give you a doctor, <laughs> brother. <laughs> Oh, I'll take it. <laughs> You'll take it. <laughs> yeah. The doctor of thugonomics, Dustin Dunaway, from Pueblo Community College, chair of English and Communication at Pueblo Community College in Pueblo, Colorado. If you have not listened to part one of this two-part episode, you're going to want to go back and do the homework, do a little of the legwork and get caught up to where we are today. And also keep in mind, giant spoiler alert, we are spoiling things left and right. So if you've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you intend to, this is probably not the episode To be you. fair, oh. you've had more than 20 years to watch it, though, so we're not going to feel too, too bad about <laughs> it's it. true. It, you have no excuses. It went off the air 17 years ago, so you've, you've got a little time to play catch up. We're going to jump back into this conversation. At the end of the last episode, we were talking about iconic Buffy episodes we latched on to once more with feeling, but there is another episode that is very much iconic, and that is, is Hush. Hush. The, it's like the opposite of Once More with Feeling, because Once More with Feeling is the musical episode. Hush is a silent episode. Right. And the only one to be nominated for an Emmy, I believe. No yeah. kidding. I mean, I'm not surprised. And it's the lore, Dustin, about Hush true, about why he did Hush. As I understand it, he wanted to step outside of the box in terms of what he could do on television and do something more cinematic. And he always thought of pure cinema as being mostly silent without dialogue. So I think he wanted to challenge himself in that. That's pretty generous. I think what happened was Buffy got a ton of criticism in its first and second seasons for relying on a bunch of dialogue that is fairly unrealistic. These characters don't talk like high school kids. These characters talk like a really good dialogue writer writes them really good dialogue. And the criticism of the show was that these kids can't act. This show is not really well put together. The only thing it's getting by on is Joss Whedon's snappy dialogue. And so he creates this entire episode with no dialogue in it to shut everyone up about the way he writes dialogue. And that's the lore I was talking about. I had heard that he was responding with a big giant middle finger to people who said it was only getting by on being snappy. Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I think the official story is he just wanted to stretch. But <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely imagine, especially since one of the other criticisms in the very early seasons were that Sarah Michelle Gellar wore skirts that were too short. So the 
I just stuck up my middle finger for people who couldn't see that because this is a podcast. Like, excuse me. However, interestingly enough, I am watching this television series with my 14-year-old daughter. And three episodes in, my daughter turns around and looks at my wife and I and says, isn't Buffy a sophomore in high school? And I said, yes, she is. And my 14-year-old daughter, unprompted from my wife and I, says to us, how come her mom lets her dress like that? (laughs) So maybe there's like this much accuracy to that criticism. Okay, sure. It's fine. Like, I get it. But it's 90s TV. You're not going to put them in that. You're not meeting. It's This is this is the why did Hermione get sexy in the third Harry Potter movie argument all over again. You have to meet your audience where it is if you're trying to do something cinematically different. So, and, and for those of you who know me, I hate that movie with every fiber of my soul because I am a Harry Potter scholar and I freaking hate that adaptation. Chris disagrees with I am me also a Harry Potter scholar and it is my favorite one. So there we go. But you also are more of a, you have way more experience studying and working in cinema than I do and I don't. And that's why I am, I think, so grouchy about it and you are way more understanding. And like, I get it. I get why. I just hate it. Is all I'm saying. But I mean, I think that's part of like part of why Buffy and even Willow, who is conservative and shy in her way, is still she's only conservative and shy within the confines of what is considered sexy and appealing for uh, a teenager in the 90s. I mean, you're going to get relatively good looking people who are in these roles. They're not they're not pushing the boundaries that much. But that's the trade off of locus of power, right? I talk about this quite a bit on this show about the locus of power where in order to get something, you've got to give something, right? So in order for these women to get this power, particularly physical power, the power to beat people up that Buffy has, she has to look like Sarah Michelle Gellar, right? Or she has to be completely sexually unattractive in every way like Brienne of Tarth on Game of Thrones. It's one or the other. You can't have both. You can't have physical power without giving up sexuality in one way or another if you're a woman on television, particularly in the 90s. And on the show, as Willow gains more power and also as she gets older, she gets considerably sexier. She gets portrayed as considerably sexier. She is sort of mousy and cute in the first season. And by the time the fifth season rolls around, sixth season rolls around, she has been portrayed as much sexier, much, much sexier in the context of the show. Uh, One of the interesting things about this conversation we've been having is in our last episode, we were talking about Once More With Feeling in which... Dawn, for the first time, becomes somewhat sexualized. And if you're like me, when I was growing up watching the show, I mean, obviously, Sarah Michelle Gellar looks like Sarah Michelle Gellar. Beautiful, sexy woman. In the second season, when Allison Hannigan gets to kind of let her hair down and be a a sexualized character, it, it does feel very empowering, just because she suffered as kind of this wallflower and to, to see her kind of grow up a little bit, it, it it felt like, yeah, good for Willow. Exactly what I was just talking about. But then, you know, looking back, once I see Dawn being sexualized, and she becomes kind of like my little sister, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? It's kind of funny the way that you start to interpret things based upon how long you've been with the characters. 
because with what I mean, I'm 14, so this queen thing's illegal. <laughs> right. And just the, you know, the gyrating hips when she's being hypnotized yeah. and dancing. And we did the same thing to Arya Stark on Game of Thrones, right? She could stab up 100,000 people as a 14-year-old, and we were totally fine with that. But, you know, in the last season, when some stuff goes down, the whole country was like, oh, Arya can't do that. And she was a grown-ass woman at the time, not 14-year-old Michelle Trachtenberg. It's that really great meme about Little Mermaid, where it's like re-watching Little Mermaid in my late 20s, and you're like, young lady, you are not going to marry a man you just saw for the first time. Like, oh my God, I'm my mother. This is a thing I bring up in my own Disney classes all the time. You know, it's important to remember that the very first thing that happens in that movie is that Ariel turns 16. <laughs> She has been 16 literally for the duration of this movie. That's how long she's been 16 years old. So maybe we can get some perspective as to who we allow to marry. But we were talking about Hush. But yeah, so in Hush, it's it's an episode where there's a some curse befalls the town and no one can talk. And they all have to go about the solving of the problem without using spoken language. And... If you have never watched Hush, the villains in Hush are so cool. It's the first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that's legitimately terrifying. It's legitimately scary. Most of the episodes of Buffy, as I am finding out from my 14-year-old as we watch, the villains are kind of dumb. Yeah, they're hokey. Like the whole of season one, you're like, I'm supposed to be terrified of the master. Excuse me. (laughs) Yes. Well, it, we just passed the season two episode of Reptile Boy, <laughs> no, the fraternity that bad. has the snake monster living in their basement. And bad. she was like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. <laughs> that that is that tops praying mantis lady from the first season. It <laughs> tops. I forgot you know, about that. You gotta yes. it. In yes. fairness, even even Buffy fans consider Reptile Boy pretty low down on the uh <laughs> But total do you folder. think I mean it yes. seems to me guys like, when it came to the villains in particular, until they had a better handle on it, they almost went Evil Dead 2 with it. That they sort of let it be silly until they got a handle on what they could do and and what what level of terror they could expect from people versus what level of they just had to lean into it being kind of silly. I think that has to do with network sensors, too. I mean, that's mm. one of the reasons why... When vampires are staked in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they turn into dust. They're not just dead bodies laying all around. They don't true blood. That's right. Uh, yeah. And that was one of the ways that they could get away with so much violence is to, number one, not have it have consequences, which is problematic in and of itself, but also not seeing all the blood and gore and things like that. They just turn to dust right. and they go away. Right. Take the fangs out of it, if you right. will. Right. Which is an- another reason why the villains in Hush are so scary is because we actually see them carve out a kid's heart and put it in a jar. <laughs> and forgot about that. I gotta watch this. That's again. I, I, this is one of the episodes that I always show in my communication classes because we talk about nonverbal communication a lot. So I always try to prep them like, Hey, you're going to see some stuff. <laughs> I just want to warn you right now. If you need to turn your head, it's fine. But also this, did show on broadcast television, so it made it through censors. So, you know, it, it, we're, we're just going to have to deal with it here. If you watched even five minutes of Game of Thrones, you'll be all right. right. <laughs> it's such an interesting conversation about where the line is 
between this being a show for teenagers and the network's understanding what that means. And Hush is not the first or the last time that the television network failed to give teenagers the amount of credit that teenagers deserve to get in terms of what they're able to process. Hush was scaled back a little bit because they didn't want it to be too scary for network television. At the same time, kids are watching like Saw. Right. And also in terms of, you know, the sexuality and, and, and so on and so forth. I think the thing the show was very clever at was sneaking stuff past the censors. In that same episode of Hush, there are jokes. There are the beginnings of a lesbian relationship. There's some pretty intense violence. There's all kinds of things that were rhetorical sleight of hand where Joss gets you looking in one direction so that he can do all this other stuff over here. Um, and the show got very good at that over the course of its... I mean, we we look back on it now and a lot of these things, especially with the, the Willow and Tara relationship, seem silly in 2020. But you have to remember back in 2000, 2001-ish, he had to fight tooth and nail to get every single piece of Willow and Tara on screen. I mean, they weren't allowed to kiss for two or three seasons. It, it, it does seem absurd now, but you have to remember what he was up against in terms of the network censorship. And one of the ways, because we were talking about Once More With Feeling, there is a very fun number oh, yeah. with Willow and Tara, <laughs> in which yes. Tara sings You Make Me Complete. Which, but there's a good good ellipses in the middle of that. But that was one of the techniques that he would use is, oh, yeah. no, I'm just, you know, she's saying complete. You know, you complete me. That's that's all she's saying. That's all she's saying. The fact that she's rising up in the air with her eyes rolling back in her head while Willow is clearly... Nah, nah. It's just, it's just love, man. Well, and now it's easy to forget this, but Tara and Willow were the first open lesbian relationship on television. Ellen had come out prior to that, but they, it was made very clear that she was not in a relationship and that show went off the air very quickly after she came out. Willow and Tara were the first full lesbian relationship we ever saw on television. Okay. That's okay. I think this is a beautiful place to segue into the horrible million dollar question is Whedon a feminist? Uh, is Whedon a because, feminist? Because, I mean, Buffy and Eliza's Eliza Dushku's name is Faith, okay? And Faith and Cordelia. And I mean, his women are in so many ways the main badasses and the main people who are the. We could factor the stinking ending all the way in. I'm definitely not bitter about it. I'm glad you started this conversation by bringing up Cordelia Chase. Cordelia, my very favorite character in the entire Buffy verse. Charisma Carpenter, my 
close personal friend. And by close personal friend, I mean one time I tweeted to her and she tweeted back to me. So now we are definitely lifelong companions. You have to send her this episode. Um, we love you. <laughs> we do. I, if, you don't, if you don't think I, I have already planned the Twitter barrage of <laughs> tweets to... Charisma but like really though, I mean like I don't know if I've ever been angry about anything than what they did to you in Angel. So like this charisma yes, for you, if, we're upset if, about if, what they did. Yes, if charisma is actually listening to this, we the three of us have your back forever. The what happened to you was unforgivable. Yeah, nightmares. Unforgivable. We're talking in code. What happened? Okay, so was okay, this. okay, so, back up. See what ha- happened was. Let's back up. Angel got a <laughs> Angel got a spinoff. <laughs> what happened was, in the early parts of the show, Cordelia was the human villain. She was Regina George. She was Regina George. She was the human villain. So there were the vampire villains, and they were supposed to represent all kinds of teenager stuff, metaphorically. And then there was Charisma Carpenter, who was drop dead gorgeous. 27 years old at the time, playing 16. We're going to go ahead and ignore that. And in the context of the show, she was rich and she was the most popular girl in school and she's awful to everyone around her and she's the actual day-to-day villain in the in the first few episodes where she makes fun of Buffy to her face and she's awful to Willow and Xander and she's just the mean popular girl right like we were talking about earlier with the hellmouth and all of the supernatural things being metaphors for teenagers going through hell cordelia is the the high school villain that counterbalances all of the supernatural villains that they have to face well two pieces of that right it's cordelia who shreks it who gets her onions have layers sort of thing but then there's Harmony, who they let stay the stereotype even after she gets turned. And, I mean, she's a whole awesome... I think I think she's brilliant. That character is a brilliant character. But I think those two represent the sort of two ways this can go. The sort of high school bully that kind of becomes a, a, a really good person and the high school bully that stays a vapid... Their whole, well, even, whole even I mean, Buffy is probably the, the third leg of that trio because if Buffy doesn't have the responsibility and if Buffy doesn't have, doesn't embrace the, the responsibility of being a hero, she is Cordelia. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she's the beautiful one. She, back in LA and then previous to the, the series, like she was Cordelia basically context Uh, context that i don't have (laughs) yes for our listeners who are obstinately only listening to episode two of this i had no idea there was a movie first so to back up to cordelia number one side note originally charisma carpenter had auditioned for buffy and just think about what a different show that would have been number yeah (laughs) cordelia goes from being the real life villain the real the 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 non-supernatural villain in the first season to by the end of the first season, recognizing that while she doesn't necessarily like Buffy and Willow and Xander, that they are fighting vampires and doing things that are important and at least keeping her alive. So that's important by the middle of season two. She has become a reluctant Scooby. We, we refer to them as the Scooby gang. 
she has become a reluctant Scooby by the middle of the second season. And by the time the third season rolls around, she is a, an actual part of the group. She leaves Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the third season, in, at the end of the third season, to go to Angel. Angel gets a spinoff. The characters all graduate from high school. And... She goes to Angel's show, where she is on that show for a little while before, through a bunch of narrative machinations, she becomes a god. And over the course of the run of Angel, Cordelia's character really expands in all of these interesting ways, and she has all these powers. Although I would argue she is at her most interesting when she's just a regular person. In the She, she becomes the Xander on that show. She becomes the person the regular person among all the super people, which is a great sort of coda bookend to the relationship between Xander and Cordelia that they both are the, there's a whole episode about it. They're both the Zeppo. (laughs) They're the, they're the one person who is just kind of there. But in season four of Angel, Charisma Carpenter gets pregnant in real life. And at the, and you're, you're like, well, how is she pregnant in real life? Blah, blah, blah. By that time, both in the lore of the show and in real life on the show, she's in her early 20s. In real life, she's like 32 or 33 years old. She's older than a high school kid by the time that rolls around. And so Buffy and Buffy and Willow and are in college. Xander is, you know, lamenting the fact that he didn't go to college. So this is the time in which some of your friends get pregnant. Like they start their lives and that's that's just the way that it is. So for her in real life, she wants to have a family. So she gets pregnant and she's doing and Joss Whedon flips out that Charisma Carpenter is pregnant in real life and essentially says she has been trying to hide her pregnancy from him. She has not been trying to hide her pregnancy from him. It's none of his business other than he's the producer of this show and she is still showing up for work and to Charisma Carpenter's credit still looks amazing during the filming of the show. But she is getting bigger. She is she is pregnant. So they have to write her pregnancy into the show. Even though there were ways that they would have been able to get around it and not do that, the number of actresses who have been pregnant on shows that you have seen. Uh, Gal Gadot? Yes, exactly. Excuse me? Like, if you can make Wonder Woman, if you could work around her pregnancy, you could, okay, it's just fine. But this, again, this is going to speak yeah. to our thesis about Whedon being actually a... That, this story is going bastard. somewhere. So, yes. so you know, they worked around Julie Louis-Dreyfus on Seinfeld. They worked around, they worked around so many actresses can't. being pregnant on shows. But what? But Joss didn't do that. So what Joss did was he wrote this really obnoxious storyline about her obnoxious, being... Obnoxious? Excuse me. Abominably disgusting. Uh, yes. About her being pregnant on the show. And then after she gives birth to uh, a monster, Jasmine, which we can talk about here in a bit. After she gives birth to a monster, he puts her in a coma for the rest of the season. So she's not on the show anymore for the rest of season four. And then Charisma Carpenter walks off the show. And so he basically begs her to come back, begs her to come back. She says she'll come back if the only, the the caveat was she'll come back, but they can't kill her character off. She comes back. 
Not only does he kill her character off, but he also kills off the only other female character on the show, Fred, and turns her into some weird super demon, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, the show has gone so completely off the rails that it's essentially unwatchable. That you're you're super excited when the Muppet episode happens, which to be frank, I love the Muppets episode, but only because we embrace the sweet, sweet relief of the silliness of Buffy back in Angel. But by by the time the end of Angel rolls around, the hundredth episode or whatever, they have enticed Charisma Carpenter to come back and play Cordelia in that last little bit of the show. But by that point, it's it's time for Angel to go. And more importantly, it's time for Joss Whedon to go. If I were her, like, I would want to go back. I'd want to be like, please, for the loves, do not let this be how I end on this show. Yeah. I'd rather go out as a god than... Ha- Joss Whedon, if you're listening, seriously, though, man, really? So the question of, is Joss Whedon a feminist, is entirely encapsulated in the story of Charisma Carpenter and Cordelia Chase, which is Joss Whedon is a feminist until he's not. And that happens over and over and over again in his career and, interestingly enough, in his own life. Yeah. And in Buffy. Like, and to bring it back to Buffy, I think the entirety of Buffy is he's a feminist until season finale, series finale, until he's not. Yeah. Because suddenly all of the men need to come in and help all of the women save the world when suddenly they're they're important. The metaphor, the, the perfect metaphor now that, that I can make because of Ryan Johnson is Joss Whedon is a feminist in the way that the characters in knives out are racially sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yes, as long as it's not an inconvenience to me, I'm all in favor for it. But once I have, once I have to rewrite a show or once I have to revise things, once I have to do something, then knives out, you know, that's the way that I look at that. 100% 100% accurate. That is the best that. metaphor. That is, that is a great way to put that. I would see, both as a feminist scholar and as a fan of the series, I would see Joss as more feminist than not if he didn't continually remind me that he's not. So for all of the episodes where Buffy is, you know, where Buffy is kicking ass and where the Willow and Tara season and all of that stuff, for all of that, there's also multiple rape scenes in this series. There's also the way that Anya dies, which I I can't even begin. And to be fair about the death of Anya, that was Emma Caulfield's idea. What, to to be unmourned? To die in a four-second scene and then no one ever talk about her again? I'm clearly not mad about it. The first part, the answer is yes. She did not want to be even asked to come back for any kind of reunion, for any kind of revival, for any kind of anything. So she wanted her character to end up very, very dead. However... The second part of your anger is all of my anger. It's 100% of my anger, which is after she dies, no one cares. No one gives a It's so upsetting because she is a great character. Yes. She is a great character. That part I am also very still upset about is that but after she like dies, no one cares. the very, very dead, there's no... Gan! 
Gandalf moment. You know, like when Frodo in slow motion has to get pulled away from the Casa Doom. Like, no, there's none of that. It's just done and she's done and we're done. I guess we're done with Anya. I mean, it, she's yeah. a footnote. Yeah. I, I totally off. agree. Yeah. I totally agree. I love her. But she wanted her character to be very dead. That's fine. Yeah. Go ahead and be very dead. There's still really, I mean, Boromir. <laughs> Let that girl die with honor and with tears from a king. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Just to weigh in on, again, on the feminist or not, I think yeah. the one good thing that Joss Whedon recognizes is that he deep down knows that he can't live up to the feminist ideals he thinks he should. So he her- surrounds himself with a lot of good female writers, Marty Noxon, Jane Espenson. And Marty Noxon is responsible for a lot of the great episodes of Buffy. And yes. and she was, you know, one of the first people to say in terms of the Willow and Tara relationship, because, you know, that was the, the first lesbian relationship that we were able to see ongoing that she recognized that her rule was yes you can show two women kissing but you can't show them kissing twice because that means that they liked it that was the network the network's, the network's rule yeah um excuse me while i go drink <laughs> so there are different ways to look at it i think that you could definitely make a case that he propped himself up with better women writers that saved him from some of his worst instincts and when they were not around anymore he fell victim to his own he was just not a good feminist as much as he wanted to be or wants to be you can look at it as he's propping himself up or you can look at it as yes he recognizes that he has failings so he enlists people to help him make up for those failings He, he at least recognizes that so you kind of have to get inside of his head to, to truly answer that. Looking at the clock right now is a good time to take a break. So let's come back in two and two. And then I have a whole list of things that we have not gotten to talk about yet. So we're going to do a lightning round. So back in two and two. Each day we're bombarded by everything wrong in the world. When we pick up our phone, turn on the TV or listen to the radio, we hear all about the heartbreak and destruction happening across the globe. But what if we could change that? What if we could begin to heal the world by focusing on all that's right? We are surrounded by stories of those helping their communities, achieving incredible things and overcoming insurmountable obstacles. My name is Kelly Rowland, and it's my mission to share stories of love, hope, and inspiration. And I would love for you to join me. Born to Inspire is available at borntoinspirepodcast.com and on most podcasting platforms. And we're back. I have a list of things that I want to get to, and I, if I don't bring them up, we'll never get to them. So we're just going to lightning round them, and we'll start from small, where we can roll through a few of them into things that are bigger. Thing one, Kendra is a second vampire slayer that gets activated when Buffy dies, which is another thing that's going to be on the lightning round is how many times Buffy dies. But Kendra is activated as a slayer. She is this black girl. Interestingly enough, Kendra, the actress who played Kendra, was the original Cordelia Chase. Whoa! So there was an original... Willow and there's an original Cordelia. Kendra's the original. Are they both Cordelia. in that pilot? 
I have it queued up on my to watch after this. Excellent. <laughs> Almost original Xander, Ryan Reynolds. What? Yep, true story. Almost original Buffy, Selma Blair, who ends oh up with God. her in Cruel Intentions. Yeah, but so Kendra the Vampire Slayer. Kendra is the first slayer that we see murdered, like actual watch her die. With Buffy, Buffy dies, but the show is called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We know Buffy is coming back. Kendra is the first slayer who we see die and stays dead. I'm just fixated on that horrible accent that they made her do. Well, there, there's actually a story behind that in that she found out she was going to have to do the accent a couple of days before they started shooting. Because up until then, Thanks, guys. she just had an American accent. And then they just said, oh, by the way, you're going to be from Jamaica now. Or wherever she was from. <laughs> like, you're black. It's fine. You can right, do that, yes. right? You're gonna, like, thank you. You're going to be from Rocky. somewhere. Yeah. So can you do an accent? And she's like, nope. <laughs> Is that some white people <laughs> or what to be like, yeah, but you're black. You could do it. Yes. yes. And as much as we talk about whether or not Joss Whedon is truly a feminist, we could talk all day about the racial problems in Buffy and especially Firefly. There's a lot there. Yes. We're both, we're, me and Chris, we're both shaking our heads gravely like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kendra gets Mr. Pointy. This is during the time when Angel is Angelus. They're trying to restore Angelus's soul so that he'll go back to being Angel. So Kendra gets Mr. Pointy and she's going to go and kill Drusilla, except you don't kill Drusilla because Drusilla is, again, the best of all vampires. And Kendra is not. And Drusilla trances her and then slits her throat on screen. Two seasons later, we can't have the scary villains from Hush, but we can straight up murder a black girl on national television and that's totally fine. Well, I mean, Chris, she's not people. Mostly I just want to talk about Kendra to talk about that accent. But yeah, I'm just saying this. I mean, please, if you think I'm not being ironic right now and disdainful, I hope you would know that, dear listener, that yes. I am not Yes. Being anything other than sneering while I say this. Like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that they could have done another Slayer that they chose to kill off that didn't have to be a non-American person of color. And yet he chose to do that mm. and then let her die in a super violent way really quickly. By the way, Drusilla kills Kendra, Black Slayer. Spike, the trench coat that Spike wears all the time, comes from another Slayer that Spike killed, which was also a black girl. So British people kill black people, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> that's, that's the general... <laughs> black, black girls are bad at being the Slayer. White girls are good at being the Slayer. Ew, I hate that. But, like, that is sort of the... I mean, if you have to walk away with what message do you see? Yeah. yeah. It is certainly It is certainly one that's there. Because there's another... Slayer that's activated when Buffy dies again, and that Slayer does not die. That Slayer actually kicks ass for the rest of her existence. Um, that, of course, being Faith. So Faith is also on my speed round list. Eliza Dushku plays Faith, but she shows up in the third season. Faith is activated when Buffy dies again, because Buffy dies a lot. And is a terrible slayer. Her watcher doesn't even like her. She's a bad girl and she does bad girl stuff and she doesn't want to be the slayer. And she just has a whole 
different vibe about her than Buffy. Eventually, Buffy and Faith become friends until Buffy realizes Faith is not actually her friend. Uh, Faith is working for the mayor, who is the season three villain, who is trying to ascend ascend to demonhood by opening the Hellmouth itself, fully opening the Hellmouth and embracing being a demon. He's going to ascend. Buffy and crew kill him in the season three finale, and Faith runs away in exile. Uh, we don't see Faith again until season five when season when Faith comes back and is kind of starts that season as a bad guy. That's the infamous body swap episode, which is another rape scene. It's just a reverse rape scene, and so we don't categorize it as a rape scene, but Faith totally rapes Riley. And then it's reformed and by the time season seven rolls around is actually more of a leader of the slayers than Buffy is. What do you guys want to say about Faith? I just want to give a a little bit of a recommendation if you've only ever seen the television show and not read season eight of the comics. There is a really good arc with Faith and Giles in which Giles enlists her to do some Slayer dirty work for him. And she calls him out on it because she says, you know, Buffy is your charge. Buffy is a better fighter than I am. You know that she would be better at this. The only reason you're not asking her is because you respect her. You know that I'm the, you have no respect for me and and you're asking me to take human life and you would never ask this of her. So that's one of the things that really encapsulates Faith as a character is we see what happens when people don't get love. And that that body switching episode is one of my favorites because we see Faith punching herself and talking about how much she hates herself because she's never experienced or felt love. And in that rape scene with Riley, after you know they've finished quote unquote making love, he looks at her and says, I love you. And she pushes him off and says, what do you want from her? She's never felt or never been told, I love you just for the sake of being told I love you. It's always in order to get something from her. So that's what makes her one of the more fascinating characters in the entire run of both shows. She is that counterbalance of what happens if you don't have Joyce as your mother? What happens if you don't have Willow and Xander there by your side constantly? Faith is what happens. Just in case you're not sure what we're talking about, body swap, we mean Buffy and Faith swap bodies. So their consciousnesses are in each other's bodies. But I don't know. I um, I think I would benefit from rewatching the series because, I mean, it's the mark of a really good actor that can make you really hate them. I mean, the kid who played Joffrey in Game of Thrones is a brilliant actor because you just want to crawl through the screen and smother him with a pillow, right? I mean, he's not a bad, but the same thing with Ramsey Bolton in that. And right. and with Faith, you just want to grab her and be like, what if in I the blue? If I see that dude who plays Ramsey Bolton on the street, I'm punching that dude in the face. Except if here's I see the him problem on the with street. that. Christopher, here's the problem with that. That's what happened to the kid who played Joffrey. He was so abused by the public afterward that he retired from acting. I'm sure. The poor fellow. We love you, just sir. Thank you for your work. Take care of yourself. And I think that's Elijah Dusku's deal, right? Like, is that she... I 
I, I hate Faith. I hate Faith. I don't. I have not yet watched the series enough times where I see the redemption. I see it. I see it. I definitely see it. But I, I hate her so much. But then I have to sort of recategorize it and be like, if you are not old enough to have experienced being able to rise above and do the right thing, even though you've been damaged beyond all belief, you have to remember she's 16 or 17 in this story. And I, I often fail to do that when I'm watching Buffy. Is you know you, these are teenagers. One thing that I would recommend for everyone who is in your boat and hates Faith is definitely don't rely solely on Buffy. You have to watch the two episodes of Angel, in which mm-hmm. she tries to commit suicide by Angel. Essentially, <laughs> push him far enough so that he will kill her, and he just yeah. refuses time and time again. To the point where she just gets exhausted and turns herself over to him. And that's the point at which she starts her redemption arc. Right. If you're if you're only And I think that's yeah. fair, because yeah. I, I, I think I if I'm remembering correctly, when Angel started then I started alternating the episodes as they would have alternated when they aired. Right. Yeah. And I do remember feeling more charitable about her character when I got to see that arc. I, I think Faith is a pretty amazing character overall. She embodies a particular spirit of the show. She is very much the anti-Buffy, and that's what I've always liked about her, primarily because, as we often say in my house, because both my wife and I agree, and independently our daughter is also beginning to agree with us having no influence over her at all. We're not nudging her in any way. Buffy's the worst part of the show. Much like Harry Potter is the worst part of Harry Potter, Buffy is the worst part of Buffy, and so Faith is the character that she's she's much richer. Yes, she's much, she's a much richer text. Yeah, within the yeah. content of the show, very much so. Okay, speed round. Keep going. Giles. Giles. Uh, Giles. We can talk a little bit about Giles in that I want to talk about the fridging of Jenny Calendar. The what? You're, are you familiar with the concept of fridging? We've talked about fridging on the show several times. No? Okay. When a character is fridged, the term fridging comes from comic books. There's a very famous Green Lantern arc in which Green Lantern is off fighting crime. He shows up back home to unwind from fighting crime and his you know he's looking for his girlfriend and he can't find her anywhere and he opens the refrigerator and she has been murdered and stuffed in the refrigerator and it is his impetus to like go get the villain and uh, he it, it her only reason for existing was to get shoved in a refrigerator so that he can go off and fight jenny calendar gets fridged on this show she is introduced as a love interest for Giles in season one. She is around oh. for season one and season two until she dies specifically to motivate a plot point. Uh, so this returns me to, is Joss Whedon a feminist? He is until he's not. The Jenny Calendar thing, I didn't even think of that. But the fact is, I was totally going a different direction, not with Joss Whedon and Giles exactly, but the fact that Giles is a non-creepy older man mentor. He's Dustin, you had sent me an article ages ago, the non-toxic masculinity of Rupert Giles. That was why I wanted to talk about Giles, because Chris and I always like to joke the uh, 
large black man is the feminist <laughs> studies and girl studies scholar, and the tiny white lady is is the critical studies of men and masculinities. Yeah. Yeah. Who better yeah. to step outside and you know <laughs> look look from a distance? Yeah, girl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I. Mm, yeah. Ginny Calendar for me. I don't have nearly as much of a problem with it in and of itself. Because I think it is a good plot twist. It it does raise the stakes in a way that a lot of other TV shows didn't at the time. And again, this is one of those things where, you know, looking back in 2020, we can see instances of characters getting killed off all the time. I mean, you, you talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> every, sure. every, every season, like, the main character gets killed off. Well, yeah, but we don't have time to go into all of Game of Thrones' women problems. Yeah, but back then, usually when a character got killed off, they brought them back in some way. When there was some sort of supernatural or sci-fi theme to it. Oh, and they're not really dead, they were just caught in a quantum realm. Uh, and they're going to come back a few episodes later. Or... No, we can magically resurrect them in, in some way. And for Ginny Calendar, I feel like that particular death, if it weren't part of a pattern, wouldn't be nearly as bad. Yeah, you're probably right. I'll probably concede that point, that if this wasn't a part of Joss's pattern of terrible things happening to women for no reason, I probably wouldn't be as mad about it. I think when you talk about, well, the the very first episode, I mean, Jesse, the... I can't remember, the, again, the actor's name, but... You, Jess, yeah, Jesse the Friend. Jesse the, the Friend, yeah. Yeah. Joss Whedon originally wanted him to be part of the opening credits so that we think that, oh, he's a regular character. But he gets killed off, and that kind of gives Xander the impetus to go off and, and fight vampires, and, you know, it emotionally sucks him in, too. So a lot of characters get fridged on this show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, women do tend to be more out there i think we tend to definitely notice it a lot more especially with jenny calendar and you could argue kendra and also fred i would argue all three of those characters are fridged and i can't even talk about fred it makes me so irrationally angry both as a feminist scholar and as a fan fred being winifred burke on angel who is a brilliant and complex and fabulous character who gets reduced to some sort of weird space demon plot device for literally no reason. It does nothing to advance the show. It does nothing to make the show better. It feels really gross. When she is destroyed as a human being in a completely arbitrary act of fridging. So both Jenny and Fred are fridged. Fridged, it's so vivid. In a way that male characters are not. I mean, sure, there's Jesse, but Jesse isn't an actual character. We meet Jesse at the beginning of the episode. He's dead by the end of the episode. These are long-term story arc characters who are fridged, not for... I mean, Tara. 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 Yeah. Tara's also fridged. It, it only happens in this particular way to female characters. And all of them sort of vaguely tied to 
to sexuality in some way. I mean, Jenny Calendar only exists to ensure us as an audience that this librarian dude who hangs out with this blonde 16-year-old all day is not a creeper. Yes, she's a part of the whole Angelus gypsy cursed storyline thing, but really she's there to tell us Giles, he actually likes women his own age and they they are in a relationship and he's not a pedophile. And when we fridge Jenny Calendar, then later, two seasons later, Olivia shows up for booty calls, the black lady from, from Great Britain. She just shows up for booty calls just to assure us, no, he's still only interested in women his own age, right? I mean, Giles hooks up with Buffy's mom yeah, so that we know that he's not trying to hook up with Buffy. And so gets fridged. Fred gets fridged because of her relationship with Gunn. At the time, one of the only interracial relationships on television. Because it then motivates him to fight harder against the demons, blah, blah, blah. This happens over and over again on this show. You know, Tara gets fridged. Interestingly, Tara gets fridged for Willow, but it still serves the same function. And, and it only happens to female characters, and I, I just I find that icky. Yeah, it, it kind of depends on if you want to expand the definition of fridging to include Riley in that. Because when Faith rapes Riley, it's treated as a transgression against Buffy. And in fact, when Buffy shows up on Angel in the crossover episode, following Faith into Los Angeles, she says to Angel, do you have any idea what she did to me? And hmm. it's definitely treated as something that happened to her, not to Riley. So, but it does give her that motivation to follow Faith there. So it it's kind of a bastardization. But there is a very clear difference in that Riley doesn't die. Yeah. And that's... There's a very clear difference. And that's what I'm saying is that if the, the definition, we use the narrow original definition of fridging as the character has to die... Versus something like, I can't even think off the top of my head, but there are a lot of narratives, especially in the late 70s and early 80s, where the lead character's girlfriend or love interest gets raped, and then that becomes the impetus for him taking revenge. Mm -hmm. So if you expanded fridging to include rape, then you could argue that Riley is, is also part of that. But it, it, yeah, also, I would agree. it also blurs the lines of what fridging is. It, it's not the textbook definition. I sometimes see that referred to as Aesop's collateral damage, where a secondary character suffers only for their impact on the main character. Like in Aesop's fables, just to teach a lesson. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. We're going to run out of time. I got to get to, and there's so many things that I need to get to, and we cannot make this a triple parter. So we have not yet gotten to talk about Dark Willow. I think this is a good transition to Dark Willow because Dark Willow, the season five arc, is widely regarded in at least Buffy the Vampire Slayer fandom as the best season, as the, as the best arc of the show. Is the transition from Willow from regular nature mage into dark sorceress based on her acquisition of power and the death of Tara. The big metaphor, of course, for that season is that really Willow becomes a drug addict. Willow is hooked on, on that bad stuff. Dark magic. Which takes the form of dark magic, again, because everything in the series is metaphorical. But it pretty clearly Willow has a heroin addiction. 
Okay, so here's what I have a problem with. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I love when she flays that guy. Like, I'm not mad about that. Like, she flays, she literally Ramsey Bolton's the guy who killed Tara. And I don't feel grossed out. I don't feel anything other than, yes! So, I mean, maybe I'm not doing the correct reaction to that. I, I, I'm aware that that's possible. But I, in some ways, find, and maybe it's the sort of vigilantism that we get when we see any of our superheroes do the slightly wrong thing and, and get back at the person who hurt them, but we're still like, yes. Um, I mean, yes. I think that there is a sort of a cathartic vigilantism there to that act but it also is the act that cements the fact that willow has gone around the bend that the power that willow has gained is a corruptive influence and has fundamentally changed who she is as a human being because she's so gentle yeah character spoiler alert from season eight if you have not read the comics the power of that is diminished because he survives that Oh, yeah. No! Oh, yeah, he becomes ew. a flayed one, and it's, it, yeah. Oh! Okay, because, like, part of the thing that was so beautiful about that is that guy was such a sexist <laughs> that you're so ready to be done with him. Really? Thank you for ruining my Friday. <laughs> like, well, really? you're an expert in canon, so you can just, uh, you know, <laughs> death of the author season. <laughs> no, it's written by the yeah. same people. It Just because it changed mediums doesn't mean media. It is, it is definitely canon. Wow, I'm up. I'm really the thing about the Dark Willow season arc is how masterful the metaphor is used, where Willow starts sneaking magic and she starts sneaking off to go find places to get dark magic, and she's lying to Tara about it, and it's just a little dark magic she can stop anytime. She kills her drug right? dealer. Then she kills her drug dealer. Then she has a tragic lost Tara is killed and it overtakes her and the most brilliant part kind of bringing this conversation back full circle the most brilliant part of this arc is that in the end Buffy can't fight her Giles can't fight her no one can fight Willow she is the most powerful thing in the universe and the only thing that saves Willow and saves the entire universe is the fact that regular dude Xander Loves her enough to die with her. She's going to kill everyone and everything. And Xander says, where else in the universe would I be? But right here. It's like the most beautiful moment of the entire series, I think. Yeah, and talk about the full arc and the careful literary knitting that he does. Because that from the earliest episodes is all she wants from him is to be told that he would rather be no place else other than by her side because he loves her. And it changes form of what that looks like in a way that becomes much more, much, much more of a good thing than a silly teenage romance. Yeah, and I think that that just goes back to one of the things that we were talking about when we very first started talking about Buffy was the acting and just the way that Nicholas Brendan owns that scene the way that Allison Hannigan breaks down you know when he says you know if you're gonna kill the world you're gonna have to start with me first I deserve that I've earned it and she eventually just breaks down and starts crying and I don't think that there's 
anyone in Hollywood that cries quite the way that Alison Hannigan does. (laughs) Fair. uh, You know, you just want to hug her, (laughs) make her some cocoa. So heartbreaking. Yeah, wrenches the heart. It's so, so heartbreaking. I think we, I mean, there's so much we didn't get to talk to. We're going to have, we're going to have to do. But you know, I feel like, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like there's little awesome breakout episodes. We could totally do one about Spike. We could yeah. totally oh, do one about, I really think we need to do one about Jonathan. Characters like Jonathan, not just Jonathan, although I think he's a really great archetype of, not archetype, he takes the archetype and makes it a caricature. But we should do an episode on the Jonathan character. We're definitely going to have to circle all the way back around for an episode on Spike. We haven't even really <laughs> talked about Spike, and he's such a such a major part. We didn't really get to talk about the cousin Olivering of Dawn either, which is a thing that we kind of have to do. It's a Buffy fandom, Hatfields and McCoys. You either like Dawn or you hate Dawn, and there's no one in between. No one is like, oh, Dawn was all right for the show. People either are like, no, she's really great, or people are like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in this entire show. (laughs) So we probably need to talk about that. We didn't get to talk about the episode with the death of Joyce Summers, which is another one of the iconic sort of heartbreaking episodes. We didn't really get to talk about Anya at all, other than her death. Anya is a great character for the duration of the series. There's so much we haven't talked about. We should bring these characters in for conversations about other things, like, you know, momentous deaths, like that one death in ER. The death in ER when Goose died again. Goose needs to stop dying. (laughs) Oh, that was the same person? That's funny. (laughs) That's two times. Two times, Goose. Two times. Damn it, dude. Yeah, I think it would make actually for a really good conversation to show how Buffy is applicable to many, many, many other conversations because it's not just a teen drama or teen comedy. It's this really cool pastiche of different genres and different age groups and different messaging. And it really, I think I accidentally just did your I was about to say you got ahead of me, so let me say my thing and then you can do that. So, at the end of a very long day, (laughs) Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so what? Now go with your pastiche of I don't think I can say that again. Just yank it out the edit. I don't know. It's like, I didn't mean to do that, but there it was. Buffy's way more than it seems, and I think that that's the so what. The so what is it? It is an onions have layers situation. It is a show that unfolds on many different levels and can bring you a lot of different stuff. And yeah, it's problematic in its way, but it's cinematic masterpiece on the small screen. Yeah, I would agree. It's a television show that was ahead of its time and highly influential because you can see in the ensuing 20 years how many television shows and producers have begun ripping it off wholesale just with a number of sci-fi and fantasy shows that have that sort of bathos feel to them. But also definitely looking back, some problems in terms of portrayals of women, some problems in terms of portrayal of race, but that's why we have jobs. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It is it is kind of a kind of a situation where I'm like, uh thanks, I think. Thanks question mark. I am glad that you are providing us with a job for sure, but also a lot of the things are are not great uh historically. I think that's a good so what. I think the show is much much more than it seems. I wonder if we would be talking about 
this show in the same context, in the same breath, as we talk about the West Wings and we talk about MASH and we talk about Seinfeld and up until recently we talked about the Cosby show. I wonder if we would be talking about Buffy in that same context if it was called anything other than Buffy the Vampire Slayer. This is one of those historical instances where the name of the show did what it needed to do for the show itself, but also put up an artificial ceiling on how seriously a lot of people could take the content of the show. Not those of us who are on the inside of the club, but those of us who are trying to bear that standard for, uh, for the show to people who have not ever seen it. I love this show, and I think the name of this show is unfortunate for me trying to get other people to love this show. But one, it's one of those things where once you've watched it, you get it. Yeah, if you watch it, you get it, right? But just like with anything else that's amazing, you got to get people in the door. Yeah. yeah. And it's a barrier to getting people in the door. The show is so good. It is so so good. It's too bad they can't do what they did to Zack and Miri. Because of Zack and Miri make a porno, people didn't want to see the word porno. So in many of the commercial advertisements for it, it was just called Zack and Miri, not Zack and Miri make a porno. I mean, if maybe you're just like, oh, you should watch Buffy. Because yeah. then it's like, oh, you should watch Felicity. Oh, you should watch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is this. So the other night, I, again, my very best friend, Charisma Carpenter, I was tweeting to her the other night, and I said, you know what this show needs is we need to Veronica Mars this show. We need to crowdfund a reunion slash revival slash one more season of catch-up, and that tweet got liked by both Cordelia and Xander, so that means it's a thing that needs to happen. So, dear listener, if you want to join me in this campaign to crowdfund us at least a Buffy movie reunion or something where we can get these characters back into our lives, we need to do that. Dude, or just like a quarantine Skype session. They should should do a quarantine episode. Josh should write an episode and they should all quarantine (laughs) Skype in, uh, Zoom meeting it and do a table read or something. Except without Kennedy. No Kennedy. That would make me so happy. Well, they have been talking about doing the sequel series with a Slayer 20 years later that is not Buffy. It's a woman of color. So that would... So Girl Meets World, but for... It's Girl Girl Meets World meets Vampire Slayer. Yeah, girl. But the the important part about Girl Meets World is Topanga's on the show. (laughs) So if we're gonna... That they're all on the show, actually. Well, yeah, but nobody cares about anybody else. So Excuse me. I care. If they, you know, if we're gonna bring back, if we're gonna bring this back around, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna need some (laughs) original, some OCs. I'm gonna need some original characters on that show. Willow becomes head of the Watchers Council. (laughs) Right. Yes. Exactly. Well, my friends, I think that's gonna about do us for Buffy the Vampire Slayer for this month by the time everyone hears this. So for Dr. Lauren Kamachi and the doctor of thugonomics, Dustin Dunaway, (laughs) I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the deconstruction workers. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hopefully we'll all be able to go outside soon. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands. The Deconstruction Workers Podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. 
If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.